All right, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That'll be our text today. Let's pray. Yes, Father, what have you done? We read there in Romans that the creation was made subject to futility. Lord, we feel that. We see it. And yet it pleased you to rescue us out of it and have mercy upon our souls and the giving of your Son. And Lord, we, we, we groan there like creation inwardly, awaiting the adoption as, as sons, that, fi- fi- that final consummation of the salvation that You've brought to us. Lord, we pray for grace in the meantime to serve You well as, as we sang. Lord, You're worthy of our all. So we pray, Lord, as this Word goes forth, this precious Gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, we would be worthy servants. We would be servants that serve Him well and magnify His name. And Lord, we prayed You would come in transforming power through the preaching of Your Word today and change hearts, help Your people, save sinners for the glory of His name we pray. Amen. Alright, so we're going to just kind of hit the ground running here like, like Mark does. Just move right on and uh, leave this epic battle that we looked at last time between Jesus and Satan. It was so intense, in fact, Mark says here that, that angels are ministering to Jesus in the wake of it. And So Mark leaves that scene and he introduces to us these next words in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. And as I've mentioned, it's an obvious fact. John's or Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospels. Matthew goes 28 chapters long. Luke goes 24. John goes 21. Mark just is 16 chapters, fitting in the life of Christ. And it's abbreviated in a number of areas. Two of those areas we've already seen at his baptism and this wilderness temptation. In both of those accounts, Mark uses the word immediately which serves to represent Mark's very very fast-paced style, his quick-hitting style that he in this narrative. And it's, in fact, it's so rapid, so quick, he completely jumps over Jesus' first year of ministry uh, here, and, uh, which was you know, largely obscure. Uh, despite the fact Jesus did make some public appearances, um, one notable one being the temple, where he drove out the merchants who were trying to make a quick buck off the, off the Passover. Um, that appears to have taken place twice in Scripture, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and also at the end. However, by and large, Jesus' first year of ministry was, was somewhat secluded. It was somewhat uh, given and devoted to, it, to small pockets of people, individuals. It is the Apostle John, really, in his gospel, is the only one that really captures the first year of Jesus' ministry post his wilderness temptation. 
all of the synoptic gospels, all the, the, the synoptic gospel writers, they jump from Jesus' wilderness scene right to where John gets arrested, which is approximately a year. Um, and when you hear, you hear the term synoptic gospels, that's a fancy term for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three Gospels. And they're called synoptic Gospels because they all share similar stories and a similar sequence which makes them distinct and set apart from John's Gospel. John starts his Gospel, as you well know, as uh, telling us about the Word made flesh. And then he introduces John Baptist as the one who bears witness of this, this Word made flesh. This is followed by the Apostle John picking up John Baptist's uh, life and it, it's after the baptism, actually. John introduces, he starts talking about John Baptist as, as some of the religious leaders come and start inquiring of John, asking him, are you the Christ? And, and John, John says, well, no, I'm not the Christ, but actually I have, I have encountered the Christ. Um, in fact, and then he starts sharing, looking backward at, the test, at, the, at Jesus' baptism, and he's, he's sharing all the supernatural activity that he saw take place there. You can turn to John 3 as I set this up. Um, John then tells us about his encounter with those religious leaders. After that, he talks to us. He, he, he has this encounter with, uh, with uh, well, actually John. John Baptist witnesses Jesus walking by and he says, there's the Lamb of God, behold Him. And so a couple of His disciples take off after Him. Then Andrew ends up going to get Peter. and Jesus calls His first disciple. Then a couple of days later, we find Jesus at this wedding in Cana. It's John chapter 2. After that, John shares his, Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem, making His appearance in the temple. And this is followed by his discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And then right after Jesus' discussion with, with Nicodemus, John shares this contextual information starting in John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So prior to John's imprisonment, we see that Jesus' ministry had some measure of overlap with John Baptist's ministry. Um, this is, the, this is the point actually where Jesus' ministry seems to pick up some steam. And John's, John's followers, they start to grow a little bit concerned about that. And we see that here in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that would be John, who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this, this joy of mine is now complete. I must decrease. I'm sorry, I must 
He must increase, but I must decrease. I was thinking about John decrease. In fact, I was just thinking about James' message, right? John just doesn't take the, the servant role. He gladly does, right? He, he gladly does this. He wants to see Jesus. And, I mean, he gladly concedes to the fact that Jesus is becoming more popular than his ministry. And let me tell you something. That's saying something. John's ministry was very popular. Again, one of the most successful ministries in the New Testament. And so he's seeing that diminish now as Jesus kind of takes off. That's what happens here. And this, brethren, this is very reflective of the, of the covenantal overlap between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant here. Jesus says in, in, in Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, since John came, now this good news of the kingdom is preached. John Baptist represented the old. He's the, last, he's the last prophet of the old covenant. He represents the old covenant era where Jesus represents the new covenant era. John's the old wineskins. Jesus is the new wine. I mean, think about it. Think about, what Je- think about what Jesus said. The testimony of Jesus toward John Baptist. Of all the, all the men born of women, there's not a greater than John Baptist. <laughs> Imagine having that testimony. That's coming out of Jesus' mouth. And yet Jesus says, the least, going back to those whole servants that we heard in the first hour, the least servant is greater than John Baptist. What a statement that is. What does he mean by that? He means John would love to have all that the new covenant believer has. All that's been gifted us. All that we're included in. All the blessings that were bestowed in the new covenant. John would have loved to have been part of that. But notice this detail John gives us here at the start of John 4. John 4, 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So this popularity shift, as I mentioned, is, it's, it's happening rather fast. However long that was, 8 to 12 months that their ministries coexisted, Jesus and John's. Jesus, though, realizing His time was not yet. And, and he, He's realizing the popularity is growing. He's down here in Judea and He's thinking, I, I, I've got to get out of here. I've got to get out of here because my time's not not yet. I've already drawn the attention of the, the religious elite in my, <laughs> in my time in the temple there. Um, it's time for me to leave. And so he has to get out of Dodge, so to speak. And so this is the point where Jesus determines to go back to Galilee and focus his ministry time there. And of course, on his way to Galilee, we have John chapter 4. He, he stops about at the midway point of Sychar and he, he engages this Samaritan woman. And he stays in that town for two days and then he heads, heads to Galilee from there. You can turn back to Mark 2. And uh, this is the point where Mark picks up his ministry. Also adding the detail that John, about John Baptist. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. So at some point between Jesus leaving Judea and entering into Galilee, John was arrested. Now Mark will, when we get to chapter 6, whenever that is, when we get to chapter 6, Mark will give a, a, a short account of John's arrest and his execution. But right now he's wanting to focus his attention on this central, his central figure of his narrative, Jesus Christ. 
And he does so providing this, this timeline marker of Jesus arriving at Galilee right after John is, is, is arrested. And, and so the time for John's decrease has come. It's come to full fruition now. He's arrested in the hands of Herod. And the time for Jesus' full-fledged increase is happening right now. It's at hand. And so the attention here turns to Galilee. And Galilee was a place that had a large population of Samaritans and Gentiles. Uh, perhaps you recall historically when the Assyrians came in and raided and invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. They, they took hostage uh, Israelites into, into exile. But as well, they all, not only just took Israelites from Israel into Assyria, they also brought some of their own people down into those northern kingdoms. And the whole goal of that, the, the sole purpose of that was inbreeding. And it was, a, it was a military strategic move. The inbreeding was as, as an attempt to eliminate, to stay back any kind of nationalist revolt. I mean, if you're, if you're not pure 100% Jew, you're not going to be joining the, the crew to come, come seek revenge, right? And it was successful, actually. Very successful. By the time we, in fact, by the time we reached the first century, the northern kingdom that was Naphtali and Zebulun and, and Asher had become quite the cultural melting pot. Yes, it consists, still consisted of Jews, but largely Gentiles. And if you, in fact, if you turn to Matthew's account in, in Jesus' public ministry that he proclaims there in, in Matthew 4, we'll see this. Uh, in fact, Matthew quotes from the prophet Isaiah, reviewing the cultural change that had taken place in the region of, of Galilee. Matthew 4. Here's Matthew's, this is where Matthew picks up where Jesus, or John's arrested and Jesus' ministry begins. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, he, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, and leaving Nazareth. Now, Luke picks up what happens at Nazareth. Matthew doesn't. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And this would have been the area where actually Jesus grew up, Nazareth. You remember, you remember well, after Andrew gets Peter, they go to get Nathaniel. Um, I think Philip, go, Philip goes with them to get to Nathaniel. Hey, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And what's Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And there was this kind of this disdain, this distaste for that region because many Jews just didn't see it, just didn't view it to be as pure uh, as the Judean um, Jewish culture. And this is the place where Jesus was born. This is the place where Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry. And some estimate 85, 90% of his ministry was there. Fulfilling the prophecy that we just read in verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's exactly why Jesus came to shed light into the darkness and the dark areas. Brother, that's exactly what He's called us to do. The very same thing. Shed the light of His Gospel into areas of darkness. 
And we're told there in verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Steve Lawson said it best, right? Before Jesus purchased salvation, He preached it. That's what His ministry was. Um, That's how He summarizes it. It was one of proclaiming the gospel. Yes, yes. The proclaiming of that gospel was matched with acts of compassion, um, benevolence. Jesus giving Himself to loving acts of kindness. He spent His time and His energy uh, seeking to meet the needs, uh, the great needs of many. And we find Him. We find Him, we find him healing, healing diseases. We find Him, we find him uh, providing. We find Him praying. But Mark summarizes His ministry as one of proclaiming the Gospel. Gospel, euangelion in the Greek. Glad tidings. We typically say good news. That's what it means. That's what Jesus came to proclaim. The Gospel. His Gospel. And this, this strikes a chord with me as, as, you know, as we, particularly as we, we've encountered um, so many different religions and religious ideas on our, our institutes here of higher learning. And, uh, and I know this idea of who Jesus is and what His Gospel is is no new news to you. It's kind of a no-brainer for those of us who our, li- our lives are surrounded by Christians and uh, Christian thought and Christian worldview. But brethren, as soon as you step outside the, the bubble of all things Christ, you step into a world that is full of confusion and darkness. Full of it. And there's no shortage of ideas on who Jesus is and what He came to do and why He came to earth. I mean, He's a great prophet, says the Muslim. Convinced of that. Oh, you know, he, he, He's one of our great gods, says the, says the Hindu. Right? Or He was a great teacher, says, says the Buddhist. The Mormons will say he was, Jesus, he was Lucifer's brother. JW's, well, he was a created being. In fact, he was created before the world was created as Michael the archangel. And every, every religion seems to want get, get to, wants to get Jesus into the mix. You ever notice that? But you tell me, how many other great religious leaders, be they a prophet, a man of repute, how many of them do you see in other religions? None, right? No, they're exclusive to their own religion except Jesus Christ. You ever notice that? Why is that? You see, because He cannot be denied. He, he may be hated. He may be despised. His people may be despised. But His existence cannot be denied. He, he cannot be dis- dismissed as a figment of man's imagination. Atheism is absolutely laughable. It's laughable. Jesus Christ is stamped all over the creation of this world, all over the world and men's consciences. They've they got to get Him in religion. They can't deny the reality of who He is. Now, yes, their suppression of the truth may have, making, they may have them making Him everything that their fancy, you know, whatever pleases their fancy. Oh, Jesus is this and Jesus is that. It's not based on truth, but we can't deny Jesus exists. So let's plug Him in. Make Him another God. Oh, let's make Him a great prophet. Let's give Him some kind of respect. But don't... No, no, no. He's not the God-man. He's not that. Brethren, whether in falsehood or in truth, Jesus is. He's everywhere. 
And my friend, you and I are not afforded the liberty to make Jesus Christ whatever we want Him to be and whoever we want Him to be. He is because Scripture sets Him forth to be and He is who Scripture sets Him forth to be and that's it. You and I can't add to it, can't take away from it. In fact, we best understand it. And He is far, far more than a prophet. And he's far, far more than a great teacher or a role model. He's far more than a, role, than a moral example to follow. He's the God-man. He is the one who's the heir of all things in whom, in whom it pleased God to dwell. The fullness of God dwells in this God-man, Jesus Christ, Scripture says. And he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And right now, as I'm speaking right now, he's upholding every single molecule in the universe by the word of his power. That's who this Jesus is. He's the one in whom every Every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that He and He alone is Lord. And He is worthy of all praise, fully God, fully man. He's worthy of all praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In fact, He is the one who allowed us all to see that beautiful, stunning display of the moon lining up perfectly with the sun yesterday. That had millions of people, if not billions of people, grabbing lawn chairs and binoculars and uh, cameras and solar glasses and welding helmets and you know their smartphones and you know we're going to capture this great moment. I don't care if my eyes melt. I'm just everybody's out doing it anyway, ignoring ignoring the clear commands. Do not do it. Don't look directly in the sun. Oh, I got to get this on Facebook. Boo. I'm going to be one of those 12.3 million uh, posts online because I got the epic picture on my on my phone. And everybody's doing it. All the neighbors look down the neighborhood, they're all in awe at this spectacle, ooing and awing and this ring of fire. And it was beautiful. I was out there with Lydia, and, and we got one phone. We're, we're trying to take a picture of this thing. And we got one phone. Hey, I fooled the family with some, uh, with some photoshopping, but um, so we got one phone out doing that. And the other phone, we have NASA. NASA had a live feed. So we're watching that thing, and the best footage you can get and doing both at the same time and, and the, the lady who's broadcasting it she actually says is it's happening as as the ring is happening and it's getting more toward the center the concentric to the sun there she said I didn't think this thing was going to make me cry people were greatly affected by this by the awe of this sight brethren even the diehard football fan, you can, you can never pry off the couch on a Saturday. He was off there not watching ESPN. He was out trying to get us, you know, see this thing and witness it. And there was, there was people crying. There were people cheering. All the dedication of folks given to see this thing. But what about the God who did it? What about Him? Uh, where's everybody doing? Where are the people at doing whatever they can to see Him? What about the maker of this event? What about this one who, who did it all by the word of His power? Moon, go ahead. Get over there. Where are these folks lining up to see Him? Where's the level of excitement about Him? How, how, about, how many folks were praising God for allowing Psalm 19.1 to be on bold display? The heavens declare the glory of God. That You see that? That's the handiwork of my God. That's the handiwork of the God you say is part of your religion and you deny His deity. 
His ability to take a, a perfectly spherical moon that just, oh, just happens to be, you know, 239,000 miles away from the earth and just out in orbit, it could be anywhere, and you got this giant sun that, oh, let's just say it's only, it's only 93 million miles from the moon, and getting that to, to line up perfectly concentric with it so you and I could witness it and say, how great is God? Yes, He is an awesome God, and He reigns from heaven above. See, He does these things for worship. And here, here you Hear these people broadcasting this thing. Oh, this, this is a great means of bringing, bringing humanity together in unity. And what about the God who did it? <laughs> he is the greatest source of, of humanity's unity if we bow to Him. But this God who lined that up yesterday, He's coming back. It ain't over. He's coming back. And as Scripture says, He's coming back with His holy angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know Him not and those who do not obey His Gospel. That makes it, that makes it very important that we understand the Gospel, right? And it makes it important that, very important that we obey it. But you know what? To know it is to obey it. It is. For, for Jesus to proclaim the Gospel is for Jesus simply to proclaim Himself. Paul rightly calls it a glorious gospel in his, in his letter to Timothy and to the Corinthians. It's good news and it's glorious news because we, stupid humans that we are, we'd rather chase after that which is much less. Let's chase after that which is created rather than the Creator Himself. We'd rather talk about the eclipse and the moon and the sun, oh yeah, and what it does for humanity and, 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 and worship it. That's our problem. That's the core to man's greatest problem. We've been worshiping the sun and everything under the sun all our days. And because of that, we've fallen short of the glory of God. And that's a nice way of saying we just muddled this whole thing all up. We've defiled ourselves with sin. We've brought ourselves under the curse of Almighty God having separated ourselves from Him. That's, that's what we've done as a human race. And it's, we've placed ourselves under, under God's just condemnation, justly awaiting His divine righteous wrath to be poured out upon us. And that is, that is, that is what we're worthy of. As the Scripture declares, you can like it, you can agree with it or not. That's reality. I don't know about you, but I want to I embrace and live my life out in light of reality, not in the own mag imagination of my mind. People can try to ignore that and, and dismiss it. You do it to your own, your own folly and your own perishing. You see, the, the euangelion, the gospel, it, it's the good news. That's why it's good news. Because what I just shared with you is the bad news. That's horrible news. The state of humanity. In fact, don't we see it? On, let's talk about man being progressive. Is, it, is, is Israel and the borders of Israel, is that looking progressive to you? I don't think things have progressed since the garden. Man's in terrible shape. But Jesus comes with the gospel. He comes with the good news. And it's tremendous news because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son in the humiliation of incarnation. We heard about it in the first hour. Jesus humbling Himself in His incarnation to be our substitute. He didn't have to do that. Out of love, He did that. Love drove that. And He, he did so in such a way to satisfy divine 
divinity and his requirement to satisfy God's law. He did it in such a way that whoever believes on him, believes on Jesus Christ, will not perish, but have everlasting life, is what the Scriptures teach. And how could that be? Because Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And He was buried, and He was raised the third day, according to the Scriptures. And in doing that, He became everything necessary to satisfy divine justice. And that's just the tip of the Gospel iceberg. But let's hasten on here, verse 15. And saying, this would be Jesus saying, this is what Jesus said, what did He say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Now, I, I don't think we want to conclude that these are the exact words that, or the exact phrase that Jesus uttered in every city that He went to. He just kind of repeated this phrase wherever He went. Um, this is, again, Mark's summary of Jesus' ministry. It was a ministry and message about the kingdom of God. Uh, this is the message that He came to proclaim from city to city. The gospel of His kingdom. This is really the heart of His message, the heart of His mission. But he begins by saying the time is fulfilled. Um, Jeff just preached a message on, on the sovereignty of God, right? This is a statement of sovereignty right here. For time to be fulfilled, there had to be time planned and plotted. And there had to be a governing of power to ensure that that plan was fulfilled, right? That it would come to pass and nothing would interfere with it. Nothing would hinder that time from being fulfilled. Galatians 4.4 4, But when the fullness of time had come. See, it's time. All providence it had to work in a certain way. It had to be all pregnant to give birth to this reality. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those, you and I, who are under that law. And here he is, Jesus is saying, he, he's arrived. The time is fulfilled. It's, it's ripe now for this moment. Fulfillment speaks of promise, doesn't it? The time fulfilled would be referring to the time leading up to this moment wherein all the promises related to the Messiah, the Messiah's arrival and appearance would be fulfilled. So it could be said, the kingdom of God is at hand now. This is an eschatological statement or an end time statement essentially. Now is the beginning of the end times. The time where the, the age to come has arrived, at least in its already not yet state. In fact, that ties right into this phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand. Whatever we, whatever we want to say about the phrase, the kingdom of God, we have to understand that this statement is birthed in its Jewish context where Jesus had, where the Jews had, a, had these uh, prophetic end time expectations and hope about the Messiah. They did. They were, they were awaiting promises in Scripture. They were awaiting prophetic promises of David's son, his throne being uh, the heir to David's uh, throne, the Messiah coming. And, and ruling and conquering and the kingdom being restored. These were, every Jew was waiting for this. The promise that God gave through Nathan to, uh, to David that his throne would be established forever. He was going to have a son on his throne. Well, Jesus is saying, here I am. It's arrived. That was his gospel. I mean, it might be, might be a bit shocking to, to your ears. But do you realize 
Jesus' gospel is not exactly the same gospel that you and I share. It's not. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God. He wasn't out preaching justification by faith. He wasn't out preaching the sufficiency of His own atoning work before it actually happened. Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what, what exactly does that mean? It's important that we understand what it means because it's the heart and soul of Jesus' ministry. I mean, if you've read through the Gospels, you've seen how many times He mentions this, right? And if we get this wrong, we get Jesus wrong. The phrase, the kingdom of God, shows up 70, 67 times in our New Testament. It's a New Testament phrase. You won't find this in the Old Testament. Not, not in this way. Matthew likes to use the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he's the only New Testament writer that uses it. And he does so uh, quite a bit. 32 times. However, he's talking about the very same thing. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, it's exactly the same thing. It means the same thing. Paul uses the kingdom of Christ in his letter to the Ephesians. It's all the same, but it's, it's predominantly used in the Gospels and primarily the Synoptic Gospels. But what is it? What is this kingdom of God? And I want to spend the rest of our time uh, answering this. We'll look at repent and believe in the next message. But when you and I hear kingdom, what is it we, we automatically think of? We hear the word kingdom. We, 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 we think of a king who is ruling in some domain, some specific area, right? Some, some physical location. Something physical. Well, Jesus is not talking about something physical here. He's talking about something spiritual. A spiritual realm. Jesus is announcing the presence of His spiritual kingdom. However, this kingdom that He says is now at hand is a kingdom that will one day be a physical. We'll have a physical manifestation. I'll explain that later. But th this phrase is not so, <laughs> so cut and dry. There are layers to this thing. I mean, on the, on the one hand, we could say that, that in a very general way, we could say that the kingdom of God has to do with God's sovereign rule and reign. It does. Um, this is a very significant theme in Scripture. Psalm 103 Verse 19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His, rule, His kingdom rules over all. And then there's that great statement that in, in, in Daniel, uh, the prophet Daniel, that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar makes, the Lord's, the Lord's dominion is an everlasting dominion forever. And His kingdom endures from gener one generation to the other. I'm going to say it in the King James. <laughs> Obviously, we believe this. This is what Scripture teaches. God is sovereign. His kingdom is... He rules over all things. But you see, that's not new. God ruling over all things. That, that's been happening since God's been happening, which has been forever. Right? Jesus is introducing something new here. He's introducing what's not been happening since mankind fell in the garden. And mankind's compliance with Jesus' sovereign rule. See, outside of Israel, the human race has largely been blinded to the God who rules the sky and the earth and all things. But, but in joining this created world and taking upon Himself human flesh, the Lord purposed to bring human flesh into His world, as it were, 
not only of his sovereign rule, but into the sphere of union with himself. Where one could also not only enjoy his reign and submit to his reign, but to enjoy his presence and his joy and his favor and his blessing. You see, the kingdom of God has come because God has come to the earth in the person of his Son. This is what Jesus brings to the table. Prior, prior to the revelation of Jesus being the God-man, we, we just don't find God dwelling with man. That stopped as soon as Adam and Eve fell in that garden. They were banished from it. As soon as they walked out, they were transported out. That was it. But now God has come in the flesh, dwelling in the midst of fallen flesh, all for the purpose of fulfilling righteousness. Which, which, which will enable man not only to be reconciled to God, but as Peter puts it, to be brought to God. To be united with the living God. To be gladly brought into the spiritual realm of, of Christ's reign in our hearts and in our lives. That is what the kingdom of God is. One of the reasons um, John MacArthur raised such a stink about the lordship salvation several decades ago has everything to do with this. Jesus' lordship lies at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus brought this kingdom of God with him and he was able to and he must because he's the king of the kingdom. Right? To suggest that, that Jesus is a kingless savior is to suggest that Jesus is no savior at all. And those out there who want to call that a, a, a gospel of works, well, they just don't understand the gospel nor the grace of God. But this idea of the kingdom of God has to do with Christ coming and saving a people for Himself and bringing them into His saving rule and reign. And yes, that begins by fulfilling all righteousness and, and dying and atoning for their sins and being raised from the dead so that he might truly reign as a triumphant king over them. But to be part of Christ's kingdom is to be swept into this realm of his redeeming reign. To be born again. To be made a partaker of his grace. To be gifted with his spirit. And be given that grace to overcome sin and, and the devil. And ultimately death. And that probably raises some questions, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if Jesus ushered in the kingdom, as he, as he says here, this is what he's saying, right? There's no question about that's what he's saying. If he does, then, then why does he tell us in Matthew 6, pray, Father, your kingdom come? And if the kingdom is all about being brought into a saving relationship with Jesus, why does Jesus tell us in the parable of the weeds that there's weeds existing in the midst of the wheat? Let me answer that last one first. That's simply because everything that appears to be something with the eye is not necessarily what it appears to be. To be a weed in the kingdom of God is to be an apparent citizen of the kingdom. However, time will prove the re that reality in most cases. That's Jesus' point in the parable of the sower, right? There's four soils. Only one of those is tilled and prepared and made ready by God and, and consequently ends up bearing fruit. Kingdom fruit. 
All the others, of those other soils, they're frauds. They're phonies. They're counterfeits. Jesus is not concerned about such folks being labeled as kingdom citizens. And He bids us not to be overly concerned about it ourselves. Hard providence and church discipline weeds out most of those terrors. But in the cases where it doesn't, the judgment seat will. That's the parable. You got the parable, the kingdom, the parable of the, of the good fish and the bad fish, right? He's sorting out the good fish and the bad fish. At the end, it's all going to be sorted out. Now, as for Jesus calling us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Yes, part of that has to do with the kingdom being partially realized here on earth. And it's a request for God to hasten the reality of its fullness. I think that's a, that's a normal desire and passion of the heart of God's people. But, but it's also, part of this is a request. Uh, Jesus sees it's fit. In other words, Jesus sees it's fit here for, for God's people to desire the reality of that kingdom within them. Don't you? Don't you aren't there times in your Christian life you feel the reality of the kingdom more than others? is Jesus. This is an appropriate earnest request for God's people. For, for it, Jesus is putting this forth as a I mean, you think about the list of the things that are mentioned in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus wants us to be a priority in our lives, in our hearts. That His kingdom would be a passionate desire of ours. Like, Lord, Lord, let the kingdom that Jesus has brought us into let it, be, let it more fully envelop us. Let, it, let, it, let us see it grow and, and ever advance and expand. Let your rule and reign be more realized by this lost and dying world. Let truth and righteousness reign. That's the heart cry of God's people. Jesus is expressing it in that prayer. Lord, let it come. Come in saving power and sweep in a multitude. Let us be more passionate about your kingdom. The confession of our own apathy. Lord, let your kingdom come in my invade my soul. Let the reality of it shape me and mold me and break me and fill me. That's the kind of flavor and priority that Jesus is modeling there in that prayer. But, but yes, it's also a request for the fullness of Christ's kingdom to actually come. You see, Jesus brought the presence of God's kingdom into humanity. That's what he's saying here in Mark 1.15. Which he furthermore expresses in Luke 11.20. Luke you don't have to turn there, but if you recall that, he, Jesus is being mocked by the scribes for casting out a demon. What they say by, is by the, by the prince of demons. And Jesus turns to them and says, if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, what do you, by whom do your sons cast, cast them out? But listen, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's the reality. He, he was doing just that, right? In other words, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is present. There's also the time he just flat out tells the Pharisees. The Pharisees are inquiring him, inquiring with Jesus about the kingdom. What, you know, what, do you, what do you say about the kingdom? When's the kingdom coming? And um, uh, Jesus says, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. But depending on the translation, the kingdom of God is within you. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, He meant it. And really, nobody was ready for that kind of understanding of the kingdom. Their ideas were all physical pertaining to the fulfillment of it. And so Jesus told them, 
it, it doesn't come with this, this physical human observation. That's not, that's not it. In fact, brethren, this even through the man who's greatest among those who are born of women, John Baptist, this even threw John Baptist for a loop. You remember that? He's sitting there in prison and, you know, think about it. Their ministries overlap. He sees Jesus' ministry. He sees his popularity rise. John's expecting a takeover. He's expecting the demonstration of a king to take place. So he sends some messengers. Are you the one we should be looking for or should we be looking for another? And Jesus has nothing but praise for John. I love that passage. But John expected this physical demonstration of a takeover. Brethren, they were all geared this way. The Jews were geared this way in their minds to see the son of David. He's entering into Jerusalem, right? Game on. Our man's here. He's going to put on the show. He's going to dominate these Romans. In fact, that mentality is the context for the parable of the minas wherein Jesus expresses the kingdom as being something that's yet future. And once you turn there as we wrap things up here, Luke 19. Luke 19, yes, the kingdom of God is here. It's present. Jesus brought it. But there's a much fuller future aspect, a yet to come, that's yet to come of this kingdom. Luke 19, verse 11. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Suppose, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That's... That's why Jesus is addressing this parable. The kingdom is yet to come in the physical sense that they're thinking. So Jesus tells this parable. You know, people start hailing you as a great leader. Jesus is quite aware of what's happening and uh, all the reputation he's produced and all the noise and the rumors and he saw them attempt to make him a bread king and you know you'd start doing all these great wonders and all these miracles and you know there's just one way to find out if he's the real deal once he rolls into Jerusalem the capital city that's going to tell us if he's the one we've been waiting for surely this is the moment this is the moment where he's going to lead the charge and take things over that was the anticipation behind this parable and Jesus proceeds to tell it to let him know that's not the case. The nobleman in the parable would be Jesus. He's going into a far country. That's Jesus going back into heaven. Notice in the parable, the nobleman leaves the country and he's crowned a king, right? In other words, Jesus Christ, the God-man, leaves this earth crowned the king of kings. The nobleman's return would be Jesus' second return. When Jesus comes, the full reality of His kingdom will be known. That's the fullness of the kingdom. He's a king. He's a king right now. But not recognized as such by, by this world. He has servants in this country who embrace His authority, embrace His lordship, faithfully serve Him. But most of those citizens hate Him and they reject His lordship. 
Look at verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. In context, this is clearly talking about the religious leaders who had totally rejected Jesus at this point in his ministry. Out of that context, it speaks of this lost and dying world who's rejected Christ. And I trust you know the rest of the parable. This nobleman returns and he asks for an accounting of the stewardship of the minas that he handed out to these men. One of them came back with, one of them was able to give Jesus ten. Another one was able to give him five. And we get to verse 20 and it says, Then another came saying, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you do not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words. He's not agreeing to what he said. I'll condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money back in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Lord, it's not fair. That's not fair. You can't do that. Oh, you don't want what's fair but you're going to get what's fair. I tell you that anyone who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's pretty violent. That's Jesus pulling back the curtain of judgment. The point of this parable is not that Jesus is a, is a severe man, although there is a measure of truth to that. Nor is it that Jesus reaps what He doesn't sow. The point is to expose this careless, wicked servant as, a lazy, as, being, unlazy and un, as being lazy and unrighteous to the core. That's what this man was. As he seeks to justify his failure by blaming the king. And really just proving he doesn't even know the king. This wicked servant represents every lost religious sinner who has false ideas and thoughts about God. They might profess to be a servant, but the reality is they don't want Christ to rule over them. And this is proven by the way they live their life, and consequently they will eat the fruit of their own way. Notice, this guy's a part of the kingdom, right? This, this kingdom realm. And he, and he was because he was physically there. But clearly he wanted no part of his rule, right? Of this king. It was only when the accounting takes place that the reality is revealed. This one has no part in my kingdom. Slaughter him. So this parable underscores there is a future not yet aspect to Christ's kingdom. Jesus' coming was the start of it. 
And we, we find from multiple other accounts, this thing grows over time, right? You got the, you got the mustard seed. And this thing's growing. You got, you got the, the yeast in the, in the lump of dough. This thing just grows and expands. It's never fully what it's going to be here on earth when it reaches uh, full consummation and glory when we step out of this life and into eternity. It's here, but it's not yet. It's not yet fully here. That's how Jesus can speak in terms of it being present. And then on other occasions, He speaks of it in ways that it's yet to come. It's the, it's the whole already not yet dynamic of the Christian life. And these two realities could be expressed as grace now, glory later. Could be. As we live now in this realm of the kingdom, we do so by grace through faith, brethren. Finding grace to be sufficient to walk by the Spirit and to conquer our enemies and to overcome sin in our life and experience God's presence and joy. And this happens in growing fashion. It's gradual. It's slow. But brethren, the promise awaits. This is going to burst forth in full fruition. We will be like Him as He is. Sin will be history. Gone. No more. No more tears. No more sorrow over sin, over anything. Wiped away. Gone. Pure. Can you even, can you even grasp that? Totally pure mind. Totally pure conduct. To- everything's gone. Everything's righteous and right. That's what we're headed toward. That's what I trust we're growing in as Christians. We all reach glory. The, these kingdom realities will be fully rejoiced rejoiced in and realized. And then, at that point, it morphs into a actual physical kingdom. In the meantime, brethren, God's called us to expand that kingdom. We are the means. You and I. Little, whatever circle He's dropped you into in your life and all the dark people, darkness around you, all the lost folks, you're the light in their midst. Shine, shine brightly for Christ. Don't discount. You're a child of God. You are the means by the Spirit of God to draw others into this kingdom, into Christ's saving reign and rule. Brethren, this world's lost. It needs the Gospel. And you sit there with the knowledge you have. It's invaluable. I mean, it is, it is priceless. We're talking about, etern- we're talking about soul, eternal souls. And you look at what's happening over there in the Middle East. The gospel's needed in this world. You got two, two, two groups of people. One of them just ruthless and blind, just the devil personified. And the other group, they got so much truth. So much truth. They got this. They got at least three quarters of it. And have rejected their Messiah. I hope you don't look over what's going on over there and say, well, I'm glad that's not me. I, I, I pray God would break our hearts and give us faith to pray, Lord, save some Hamas members. Wouldn't it be a glorious testimony of God's power taking demon-filled men and making them righteous servants of the living God? Take these proud Jews and humbling them and making them humble servants of Jesus Christ. Brother, the world is full of darkness, full of confusion, full of rejection of Christ, and you're the testimony, you're the light that's supposed to shine to extinguish that darkness.
Because you've been brought into this kingdom. The glorious privilege is ours, brethren, to be part of the kingdom of God. And what a responsibility it is. Oh, Father, help us. Help us as Your people, Lord. Please, You've poured upon such riches upon us in Your Son and through Your Son. And yes, Lord, the least of us, Lord, it could be said, is greater than John the Baptist. And what a responsibility that is. Lord, help us. Help us to be, Lord, we want to be conduit. We want to be vessels in Your hand to see this kingdom, the footprint of Christ's kingdom, so to speak, to expand and grow. Lord, and we do pray, Your kingdom come. Lord, You told us to pray it. So we pray, come. Come in power. Come in fullness. And come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.